0: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London this week, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. One year ago, Tesla's market value exceeded that of most other car firms combined. It has since plummeted, as has Elon Musk's net worth, as investors seem to have realized that it is a car maker, not a world-changing tech firm. And Perfect Strangers is an Italian film that came out in 2016, winning a prize for its screenplay. In the ensuing six years, it has been remade in more than 20 countries. We'll tell you why a film you may never have heard of has proven so successful. But first, A defeated far right president who refuses to concede an election loss. Thousands of his supporters storming government buildings. (laughs) (laughs) Scenes of police coming under attack and institutions left ransacked. (laughs) This is a description not of the attack on the US Capitol two years ago, but of an assault on Brazil's legislature. Yesterday, it's already being called Brazil's January 8th, a reference to the date of the Capitol riot. And questions are being asked about how or why the authorities failed to stop it from happening.
1: Ever since the January 6th riots in Washington, DC, fears have been building here in Brazil that we would see an attack on the government institutions.
0: Sarah Maslin is The Economist Brazil correspondent.
1: And exactly a week after the inauguration of Brazil's new leftist president, Luiz Inácio da Silva, at around 3 p.m. yesterday in Brasilia, the capital, thousands of bolsonaristas, or supporters of former populist president Jair Bolsonaro, stormed the modernist buildings of Congress and the Supreme Court, along with the presidential palace. They broke windows and damaged furniture, in the Senate, they climbed onto the stage and slid down as if it were a playground slide. In the Supreme Court, they ripped a door of one of the justices from its hinges and posted photos of themselves on social media, hoisting it up in the air like it was a trophy. These scenes were striking in that they really reminded everyone of the attack on the U.S. Capitol.
0: And what was the response of the authorities and, and what's the situation now? We're speaking early Monday morning.
1: Well, by the end of the evening, police had managed to retake control of all three of those government buildings using tear gas and pepper spray to expel the protesters. According to Lula's justice minister, more than 400 people were arrested and something like 40 buses used to transport them were seized. But there are questions being asked about the police's handling of what happened.
0: Tell us about those questions.
1: Well, the police were... Very passive. After the invasion of Congress began in Brasilia, a group of officers were even caught on film chatting with the protesters, taking selfies, and filming the beginning of what turned into chaos rather than acting to stop it preventively. Requests for backup from the head of the Senate police to the governor of the federal district of Brasilia, who's actually an ally of Bolsonaro, were ignored until late in the afternoon He later fired his security secretary, who was Bolsonaro's justice minister, in what looked like an attempt to save face. Things finally looked like they were clearing up after President Lula declared a federal security intervention in the District of Brasilia, which put the police under the command of an official he had appointed.
0: Uh, What has President Lula said about things so far?
1: Lula called the protesters fascists and vandals.
2: Como, verdadeiras, como verdadeiros vândalos, destruindo o que encontrava pela frente. Nós achamos que houve falta de segurança e eu queria dizer para vocês que todas essas pessoas que fizeram isso serão encontradas e serão punidas.
1: He Eles blamed Bolsonaro vou... for inciting the invasion. Bolsonaro has never conceded defeat in the election. He suggested for months that it would be rigged. And he went to Florida on Inauguration Day in order to avoid passing the presidential sash to Lula, as tradition holds.
0: So Bolsonaro wasn't in Brazil. Has he had anything to say about the attack?
1: Well, later in the evening, he did condemn his supporters' violent methods. He tweeted to say that while he supports peaceful demonstrations as part of democracy, the invasions today were outside of those parameters. But for a lot of people, it really seemed like too little, too late.
0: And Sarah, you were with us last week. You had been spending time with some of Bolsonaro's supporters camped outside military buildings. Did you get a sense that something like this could happen?
1: Yeah, that's right. On the day of Lula's inauguration, I visited the Bolsonarista encampment outside Army headquarters. They've been camped there since October when Bolsonaro lost a very tight election to Lula, and they've been begging the Army to stage a coup, saying that the election was stolen. But it became increasingly clear that this coup wasn't going to happen. Last Sunday, my colleague Catalina and I talked to one of the kind of leaders of this encampment, and he had just created an ominously named WhatsApp group called Estrategia 2, or Strategy 2. And in recent days, bolsonaristas have been openly calling for demonstrations on social media. So it was really clear that something was going to happen, and one security expert I spoke to thought it highly unlikely that police were unaware of these plans to invade government buildings.
0: So, Sarah, there are some connections between people around Donald Trump and people around Jair Bolsonaro. Is there any speculation starting to emerge in Brazil about more substantive connections between those two groups?
1: There are lots of connections between the small group of people around Jair Bolsonaro and the small group of people around Donald Trump. Bolsonaro's son, Eduardo Bolsonaro, actually met with Trump in November. A lot of people are starting to wonder here in Brazil to what extent some of those Trump advisors perhaps could have been involved in some of the planning, at least of the narrative that Bolsonaro has been claiming for so many months that the election was going to be rigged, that the election was rigged. And, you know, I think there are going to be a lot of questions and investigations in the coming weeks and months into whether there could have been some involvement.
0: So short of a coup, is there anything that could satisfy Bolsonaro supporters? And and if not, where does that leave Lula's administration?
1: These bolsonaristas simply don't accept Lula as their president. And so taking steps to prevent future attempts to create chaos is going to be really tricky. This federal security intervention gives Lula's government broad powers, including to investigate and fire any police officers who are shown to have violated their duties because of political beliefs, which in theory could kickstart similar reform efforts of the police in other Brazilian states. But first of all, we're not sure that they're going to go as far to pursue that kind of a purge. And This whole intervention is also going to take the attention away from other really pressing matters, like a series of sorely needed economic reforms. So a week after Lula's inauguration and after years of political and economic turbulence, Brazilians are desperate for stability, but it looks like they're going to have to wait for a little longer.
0: All right, Sarah, thanks so much for joining us this morning.
1: Thank you, John.
0: On a Twitter space just before Christmas, Elon Musk, the firm's CEO, was talking about the prospects of one of his other companies, Tesla. Um, I mean, I stand by my, my prediction that uh, long term, um, you know, that, that that Tesla will be the most valuable company in the world. I'm I, I'm 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 actually fairly confident that that will be the that will be what happens. That's not going to happen soon. On January 3rd, just a few weeks after those comments, Tesla's stock lost 12% of its value in a single day. The amount? Roughly $50 billion, or one whole Ford Motor Company. It means Tesla's stock begins the year as it ended the last, in decline. And that's a trend that doesn't appear to be changing.
2: Look, at the beginning of 2022, Tesla was valued at an incredible $1.2 trillion, which is more than most of all the other car companies in the world put together.
0: Simon Wright is The Economist's industry editor.
2: It's lost three quarters of that value over the course of the last year, and particularly over the course of the last month, it lost something like... 40% 40% of its value. And that's wiped out 200 billion of Elon Musk's fortunes in the process. So the correction has been extreme, should we say. So let's
0: start pre-correction. Why was Tesla valued so highly to begin with?
2: Well, a lot of people in the industry were scratching their heads about that and all sort of saw this correction coming. But I think it's because Tesla has sort of two personalities. On the one hand, as Elon Musk would say, it's first and foremost a tech company. Tech companies are valued differently to companies that do old-fashioned metal bashing. And that's the reason that Tesla's value is soared up to 1.2 trillion, because, you know, there's this idea it's going to change the world by developing autonomous driving and just changing the whole way that we sort of travel around. But at the same time, it's also a car maker, The tech company side of it and the idea that the tech moguls have that they've got some service that's going to take over the world was what was on first and foremost investors' minds when they pumped it up to this incredible level but at the same time there's been an enormous tech correction of late and that has dragged tesla down with it but that's only part of the story at the same time tesla is very much a car maker listen if you're a tech company the sort of marginal cost of your next unit is basically zero if you're a car maker it's very very different you need an enormous amount of capital you need factories you need to produce them and at the same time tesla is enduring the tribulations that are affecting other car makers around the world. So that's another reason that the share price has come down.
0: And what about the environment in which it operates? I mean, Tesla was, was a sort of first mover in the EV space. That's not the case anymore, right?
2: Well, that's exactly right. Look, there was a time when if you wanted an electric car, you didn't really have much choice in the matter. You know, it was almost a Tesla or nothing, particularly at that sort of top end of the market. But of course, the established car industry both pushed by Tesla's success, but also pushed by environmental regulations, has invested an enormous amount in electrification. And we're now starting to see the sort of fruits of that investment. Last year and this year, we're going to see a whole raft of new electric models right across the board from the established industry. And at the same time, we're seeing companies inspired by Tesla startups also bringing new models onto the market. So there's an enormous range of interesting electric cars that you can now buy, all competing with Tesla. Now, Tesla may still have an advantage that it's software, the thing that is expected to sort of define vehicles in the future is much better than the software from certainly the established car industry. But even in that sense, they're catching up. So the difference between a Tesla and what you might get from the established industry or startup is much, much smaller these days.
0: And Simon, you mentioned earlier in our talk that the decline in Tesla's share price has been particularly steep very recently, coinciding with the period of Elon Musk's Twitter ownership. Is there anything in the fall of the stock, do you think, that can be tied to that, to Musk himself?
2: Well, it must be more than coincidence, I think. There are a couple of things going on here. First of all, Tesla investors are very worried that the distraction of owning and running Twitter means that Elon Musk isn't giving his full attention to his car company. And that almost certainly seems to be true. The second is whether his antics since taking over Twitter are actually going to damage Tesla's brand in some way. I mean, the kind of people who buy Teslas are the sort of left-leaning, environmentally aware people who may not take kindly to the sort of libertarian outpourings that we've seen from Elon Musk. So there's a danger that that does, in some sense, damage Tesla's brand as well. So if that's
0: true, if Tesla is a car company, not a tech company, and its CEO is not superhuman, but all too human, how best to value its prospects, do you think?
2: Well, look, I think you still have to accept that it's to some degree a tech company. And that's absolutely why most other car companies in the established industry are also trying to rebrand themselves as tech companies, because, as I said, software is going to be so important in the future. So it's certainly that. But you have to accept that the problems of the car industry, the supply chain, foul-ups, getting access to chips, which is something that Tesla weathered better than most, the softening of demand that we're seeing in the industry, they're all going to affect Tesla as well. So you have to look at it as a bit of both. And then you have to sort of take the view of which of those is going to weigh more heavily. And I would say at the moment is that it's the car company side of things that seems to have the sort of upper hand in Tesla's sort of dual personality.
0: So given the scale of Tesla's correction, how should we be thinking about it now as a, as a, as a car company? What do its prospects look like?
2: Well, look, if you look at Tesla just as a car company, it still looks pretty impressive. In 2022 it delivered 1.3 million cars which was 40% more than the year before. That was a little bit less than expectations of analysts and Elon Musk said it would grow by 50% but that's still pretty good. It opened two new assembly plants and in the future it's working on a smaller cheaper car. This year it's going to start delivering its long-awaited cyber pickup truck and also it's still worth around 340 billion which is nearly as much as the next three biggest car makers put together. So you have to look at it as a successful car company if you are going to look at it as a car company.
0: All right, Simon, thanks so much for your time today.
2: Uh, Thank you, John.
3: One evening, seven old friends meet for a dinner party.
0: Margaret Kadifa writes about culture for The Economist.
3: One of the people in the group is a psychiatrist, and she proposes a game. Each person will put his or her phone on the table, and when they get a call or a text or a WhatsApp message, they have to read that message aloud or answer the telephone call aloud. Everyone in the group agrees because they say they have nothing to hide. So this exercise plays out in an Italian film called Perfect Strangers that came out in 2016. And it causes chaos at the dinner party. And it also makes for a very good film. The film has been remade more than 20 times since it was released.
0: 20 times in six years. That's incredible. Why do you think it's been remade so much?
3: Yeah, it is a lot. And it's perhaps the most remade film there's ever been, certainly the most in any recent years. There's a couple of reasons. So the first reason is that it's a really good watch. The game that the characters play reveals affairs. They reveal an accidental pregnancy. There's closeted homosexuality. There's a lot of drama. All of these characters are living double lives. And this film was a box office hit in Italy and its screenplay won a prize at the Tribeca Film Festival. Another reason is that it's easy to make and it's cheap to make. You know, it's all set in one apartment with just a handful of actors. And there's this straightforward plot, you know, this story of a dinner party with a game and everything has gone awry. But that straightforward plot still has space for screenwriters to tease out different cultural nuances. And then perhaps most importantly, there's this broad theme of technology and privacy and how that works with our 21st century lifestyles.
0: And so tell me about the different versions. How do they compare with each other?
3: There are surface level differences. For example, the Italians are eating gnocchi and the people in the Icelandic version are eating reindeer. But there are also deeper changes that really reflect societal differences. So for example, you can see who is expected to raise children in different cultures. There's an Arabic language remake, and that remake is set in Beirut. And one character is a housewife who is bringing up her children with the help of a mother-in-law who lives in her home. And in the Icelandic remake, this same kind of equivalent character is actually a father who's taken on the bulk of the child-rearing duties, and there's no mention of any extended family at all. Similarly, if you watch the Italian film, some of the friends have a bigoted reaction to finding out that one character is gay. And that shock and surprise at someone being gay felt a bit passé in Denmark, for example, where same-sex relationships are more widely accepted. And so in that version of the film, there's a character who is gay but She's only closeted because she's currently married to a man.
0: But despite those differences, the broader themes still cut across multiple cultures?
3: Yes. So there's this big, broad theme of individuals being reliant on technology and yet still expecting privacy. And that plays really well at least in the rich world. So all of us are walking around with essentially an electronic diary in our pocket. And I don't know if we've really thought through the repercussions of that. So in the Italian and the South Korean and the Arabic language films, what actually prompts the characters to play the game is the fact that they're all gossiping about a mutual friend whose wife caught him cheating by snooping through his phone. And so they have this friend with this failed marriage in part caused by his failure to secure his mobile. And that's what ends up prompting the characters to share their calls and texts at the dinner table.
0: And you know, in all this discussion, I haven't heard you mention an English language version. Is there one?
3: There is not one. So what often happens is Hollywood will find a foreign film that does really well in that country. It will remake it in English and then it will export like a dubbed or subtitled version all around the world. And what that tends to do is dissuade other countries from releasing their own take on the material. Now, That hasn't happened yet with this film, and one key reason might be the fact that Harvey Weinstein's, now defunct film company, initially bought the rights back in 2017. And a couple of years later, Issa Rae, who's an actor and producer, announced that she would make the film for an American audience, but there haven't been very many details since. So in the interim, Hollywood has really left a gap in the market, and that's been great for international storytellers.
0: Margaret, thanks so much for joining us today.